1: Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: This is a CBC podcast.
3: The next chapter.
4: I actually tend to write according to the sound of the line.
3: I can't believe there is this much to know about badgers.
5: Life definitely got more fun once I joined BookTok.
3: The next chapter.
0: On CBC Radio One and
3: Sirius XM.
2: Word of mouth has always been a potent force in pushing a book's fortunes. And the current gold standard in word of mouth is book talk. Book talkers are driving book sales and turning backlist books into bestsellers. Our in-house book talker, Bridget Raimundo, chats with me later today about her life on Book Talk. Another way to get eyeballs on your book is to write a really good one and get it shortlisted to a prestigious prize list. Sarah Bernstein did that. Study for Obedience is on both the Giller and Booker Prize shortlists. In a half hour, Ryan B. Patrick talks with Sarah. And if you're looking for some homegrown book recommendations, our columnists here at The Next Chapter Are happy to oblige, and that's where we open the program today. The writer and stand-up comedian, and my buddy Charles Demers, on what reading about animals can tell us about ourselves. I'm Ali Hassan. Welcome to the next chapter. Charlie Demers is a friend of mine and also part of the Comedy Brethren. He's also a writer and has been on The Next Chapter talking about his own books and recommending books by other people. And that's what he's here to do today, recommend some titles. Charlie joins me from Vancouver to tell us about three books that took him deep inside the animal world. Hello, Charlie. Welcome back to The Next Chapter. Hello, Ali. Thank you very much for having me. I'm happy to have you here. Now, I have heard you talk about your family uh, at length. You're okay with them. You're not particularly crazy about them. Would you (laughs) describe
3: yourself as an animal lover, though? Uh, You know what? I have the heartbroken, allergic child's love of animals. (laughs) So I was uh, like a, a, a little boy who was allergic to everything but fish and just wanted nothing more than to... Be around animals uh, to have an animal. I used to uh, maybe one of the most kind of pathos uh, laden um, details about my childhood is that I would go over to a friend's house. These this family had an an, an encyclopedia, and I would take down the the book for for D that had the dogs uh, inset in it, and it just had pages of photos of dogs. And I would every time I was over at their house, I would just pour over these dogs pages. That's how much I wanted a dog. And uh, so now uh, as a grown man uh, who gets to uh, make all of uh, his own decisions uh, that are you know, pending spousal approval, mm. uh, I now am able to have a hypoallergenic dog of my own. So I have a little four-year-old standard schnauzer um, whom I love very dearly. I'm so
2: glad that ended positively for you. I was, I was like, I'm not sure how to end this therapy session. And then you just kind of ended it yourself with a, yeah. with a great, uh, a, a, a great topper there. you got a dog and you love it. It's resolved. Yeah. Great. So it's, it's one thing to, to like animals, have them in your life, but reading about them is committing, you know, what, what drew you to the books that you're going to talk about today?
3: Uh, so the the first book that I got, I, I picked up uh, a few years ago when it came out. I was in Los Angeles at the kind of famous uh, book soup on Sunset Boulevard and saw this book, Once a Wolf. And I had fairly recently, we had just kind of gotten our, our dog, uh, Luna. And... I was in the triumphalist phase of my relationship with dog. You know, I, I, I didn't need encyclopedias anymore. I didn't need photos of dogs. I had my own. But I, I maybe wanted to dig a little deeper into the relationship between humans and dogs, which is what Once a Wolf by Brian Sykes promises. Uh, so Sykes is not a dog person. He actually opens the uh, book by saying, Listen, I had a terrifying experience uh, with a dog when I was a child, and for the rest of my life, uh, I've I've only really had uh, a good relationship with one dog. I don't like them, but I'm a geneticist. I study DNA, I study genes, and uh, the story of human beings and dogs is a genetically fascinating one from a kind of biological evolutionary point of view. So Sykes actually begins the book by kind of floating uh his theory for the domestication of dogs uh by human beings, which uh is sort of not a domestication of dogs at all, but a, a sort of co-evolution of Homo sapiens and uh wolves uh who sort of gradually became uh dogs over the course of a symbiotic relationship that was based around hunting together. It's a theory. Um, It's not something that is um, that we know for sure. But Sykes believes that it's proven out by the uh, the sort of genetic uh, record, and and it's a fascinating dive from an angle that I was uh, completely unfamiliar with. Okay, so we
2: you know wolves, who we consider generally as wild and aggressive alpha animals, (laughs) they got tamed over time.
3: Um, yeah this is the, a big thing for Sykes. He says not only are they uh, sort of wild kind of predatory animals, but they they now, in kind of post agricultural human societies, are uh demonized animals we We sort of think of uh, wolves as vermin in the sense that we want them away from our societies, we want them away from everywhere where human beings are are living and in fact there have been uh, massively successful campaigns through human history to uh, eradicate wolf populations. But uh, vermin isn't the right word in the sense of uh, it doesn't quite capture the empowerment that we project onto wolves. I mean, we're, we're terrified of them in, in a number of societies around the world. We have these legends about wolves and Sykes kind of sees this as, as the sort of uh, shadow side of our move from... Uh, sort of uh, pre-agricultural or non-agricultural societies into more kind of rooted – he really kind of sees it more around like kind of almost – our our societies move into kind of um, a more rooted farming agricultural society is essentially what breaks our relationship with the wolf – but uh, lays the groundwork for our relationship with the dog. Hmm. Because now we needed something to herd animals. We needed something to guard farms. And uh, as early as ancient Egypt, ancient Rome, uh, we also had these animals that we kept just for um, affection, love, and the kind of pocket dog, uh, (laughs) you know, just uh, showing off.
2: All right. So Once a Wolf recommended... What book is next on your list?
3: The next one is The Animal in the Room by Megan uh, Kemp G. And uh, this is a a very different book than Once a Wolf, but it is very complimentary. Uh, So dogs don't really make much of an appearance in this uh, book of poems, but uh, wolves do. As do uh, deer. They're another um, recurring uh, animal motif in this book. Uh, But so are the irradiated spiders of uh, Chernobyl. So are the octopus. So is the owl that uh, Charles Darwin ate. So is the brontosaurus. Um, And if that sounds like a kind of uh, eclectic, uh, jarring, kind of uncanny collection of uh, animals, uh, sort of an interesting Menagerie. I, I don't think that's by accident. You know, sometimes, Ali, you sit down and, and read poetry. If you're not a, a normal, you know, usual poetry reader, as, as I'm not, I will often read poetry and think, well, I'm not up to the task of reading this. I don't get it. Poetry is just, it's, a, it's above me. And then sometimes you'll sit down and read a book of poetry and you think, why don't I read poetry all the time? Hmm. And, and this this was one of those books. I'm getting the animal farm vibe here as you describe the animals
2: <laughs> uh, that that Megan Kempji, you know, uses here. Are these poems, you know, are, are these really sort of humans uh, or representing
3: humans? Do we? You know what? It re- the book reminded me of a kind of uh, an observation from a book by another writer whose book I'm not, uh, you know, here to pitch today, but um, Jenny Diskey, the British essayist, uh, wrote a book about animals. um, And in that book, she kind of gets at the fact that animals being the sentient creatures who aren't humans, the, the creatures we share the planet with who aren't us, are basically they're a kind of Archimedean point outside of the human experience that lets us understand or gives us an angle on ourselves where we can kind of try and figure ourselves out. Like, you can talk about animals in such a way that uh, lets you, I don't know, shed a kind of sideways light on what it means to be human. And that's what these poems uh, do. But what what they also do is then talk about being human in a way that sheds a kind of sideways light on what it might, be like to be an animal. It's a book that has a kind of very universal empathy and uh, sort of shifts around its, its perspective, its it's point of view, um, which is it just means the same thing as perspective. So I really was clearly just uh, stalling for time there. Uh, but she's really kind of got this this bird's eye view, and, and sometimes it's literally a bird's eye view uh, of creatureliness of being, and then finally at at a certain point in the book, there's. A story that's uh, or a poem that's uh, told from the perspective of a bunch of inanimate objects in a hotel room. And now you're getting to the point where humanity and then animality and creatureliness is, is being bestowed upon these sort of lifeless plastic objects. And it kind of reverberates back on the animals and human beings that that you've been thinking about through the other poems.
2: All right. I mean, maybe I will check out this poetry then. I do like that too. I've also met animals where I'm like, I don't really like animals. And then you meet a certain dog and you're like, I think I just
3: love all dogs now.
2: So (laughs) these things happen, you know? It's
3: it's true. It's like they've got, they choose uh, an ambassador. Like (laughs) (laughs) if you meet the the animal diplomat that represents a particular species, a particular genus, uh, they can win you over. Yeah. They send out their their, their Neil Young
2: or their, you know... (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. Gordon Lightfoot or something.
3: Absolutely. Um, What is that last book on your list today? Well, the the last book is kind of a book of diplomacy on behalf of a much maligned animal. And uh, this is a book called Badger by uh, Daniel Heath Justice. And this is a book that very kind of uh, explicitly kind of sets itself to the task of telling you kind of everything you need to know uh, about a creature that we know so little about, that is both kind of symbolically and also literally underground and uh, removed from the, the, the human world, and an animal onto which we've projected all of our kind of most repressed uh, sort of uh, elements and, and uh, you know, basically an animal that, in other words, has has gotten, for the most part, a very bum rap. I have to say that in reading uh, Daniel Heath Justice's book, I kept thinking to myself, "This this must be the best researched book I have ever read in my life. Like, mm. it was just one of those books where... You just kept thinking, I can't believe there is this much to know about badgers. All right. Like, I've never thought about badgers in my entire life. And then I sat down and read everything I could possibly ever want to know and didn't know that I wanted to know about badgers. And it was beautiful. It's very and-
2: interesting. You know, I was feeling very sheepish as you're talking about badgers. <laughs> I was like, oh, maybe... You know I, I know Badger is one of the characters in 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 The Wind in the Willows the, the main character that's in, right in the Wind in the Willows and then I was like but that's it I don't know that much I how do I how do I show my face around Charlie Demers anymore knowing so low? <laughs> but I'm I'm happy to hear that you yourself didn't know that much about Badgers and now this book goes and presents them in an intriguing Kind of way, Daniel Heath Justice. I happen to know is a professor of First Nations and Indigenous Studies at UBC. Yeah, and a fantasy writer. So does he apply, you know, some some interesting context from that background to the badger as well?
3: Yes. So uh, he applies a, a context from just about every angle you can you can imagine. Like so so there's there's badgers as um, figures in in indigenous uh, sort of cosmology um, in uh, you know in Turtle Island, uh, but also badgers in uh, professional North American sports mascot uh, world, and sure. badgers in uh, British family regalia. Uh, there's badgers in the sort of cultural realm of, uh, as you say, the wind in the willows figures in a pretty major way. But then there's also um, badgers in terms of just like the taxonomy of their sort of biological life. And of course, uh, Heath Justice is attuned to the fact that there isn't a strict border uh, dividing our cultural life and our biological knowledge. So he talks about the way that badgers were classified by uh, biologists and amateur taxonomists as they entered the quote-unquote new world uh, at the sort of knife's edge of of European settlement uh, and were sort of sending back uh, all this uh, information about what they were discovering about the the badger over here or what they thought they were discovering about the badger or what they were projecting onto the badger. And there's a real kind of through line into what Kemp G's book of poetry does uh, with our relationship with with uh, other kinds of animals and to a certain extent what, what Sykes does with our relationship to wolves and and dogs. Um, in Sykes' book, there's a little bit of kind of noble, savage, uh, waxing, uh, rhapsodic about uh, the relationship between indigenous cultures in the Americas and uh, uh, wolves, because he tries to set up basically indigenous society and its relationship to uh, the wolf as being a much kind of purer or more pristine Uh, and preserved uh, version of what uh, the relationship of uh, European society used to be um, to the wolf. And I think that's a, a, you know, kind of dangerous uh, game to play. I understand what he was trying to do. Um, But I think Daniel Heath Justice, as as you pointed out, Ali, is like pretty well prepared um, uh, from his background uh, academically and in in terms of his interests to to really take on just how we approach from our various vantages um, our relationship to a given animal and the way we talk about, you know, where we sit in, in the quote-unquote natural world.
2: Well, Charlie, thank you for doing that reading and for coming on to share you know, all of this with us. I feel like uh, I can hear how much your mind has been expanded into the animal world just from, from, from these books.
3: And, you know, unfortunately, we're not in the same recording booth right now, Ali, but I smell like a badger as well. Well... I guess it's good that we're not
2: in the same recording, but I think that's a blessing, isn't it? Unless there's something I don't know about the smell of badgers. There is something called a honey badger, and maybe maybe that's why they're called honey badgers? The sweet scent of honey
3: coming yeah, out of them. That is uh, unfortunately not why they're called honey badgers. But you will learn why they are uh, in Daniel Heath Justice's book. That's great. Thanks so much,
2: Charlie. We'll talk to you again. Thanks, buddy. Charles Demers is a comedian and an author. His most recent book is Noonday Dark, the second installment in his Dr. Anik Boudreau mystery series. The books Charlie talked about today are on our website, cbc.ca slash the (laughs) next chapter. Anahid Dashtgaard has worked for Greater Equity and Inclusion in the workplace for two decades. In her book, Bones of Belonging, Finding Wholeness in a White World, she writes from a personal perspective about racism and inequality and how to build belonging. Here is Anahid Dashtgaard.
0: One of the, the reasons I continue to write is that I think we need more accessible stories to help decode everyday experiences of marginalization and racism, but in ways that are non-preachy, without shame or blame, just everyday, regular, universally relatable stories. This book, I think, is that. I wanted to write a series of stories that would be different sizes and shapes, much like the bones in the human skeleton. And... Each of the main stories in the book, there's 10 of them, explores belonging from a different perspective. What does it mean to belong to the land, in our bodies, in a marriage, um, to a country? So I also wanted to use story as a way of bringing people into the conversation, of making this conversation around race and immigration and exile and just universal journey toward belonging when we experience difference in any form, relatable to anybody. I think empathy is our biggest hope to get out of this polarizing mess that we're in as a species right now, Um, understanding reality beyond the confines of our own experience. There's so many layers of finding meaning in any moment or experience that one writes about. I feel as a nonfiction writer, a responsibility to tell the truest version that I can find for myself. And trusting that that will be the one that resonates most with people out there.
2: That was Anaheed Dustgard talking about her book, Bones of Belonging Finding Wholeness in a White World. Kevin Major has been telling stories of Newfoundland for more than 40 years. In the early years of his career, he was a teacher and he was frustrated at the lack of books featuring his own province, so he began to write them himself. His early work featured family life and adolescence, and these days he writes an adult mystery series. It's up to five books now. It features a former teacher-turned-Newfoundland tour guide, and the latest in that series is Five for Forteau. Here is Kevin Major answering the Proust questionnaire.
1: Name your favorite writers.
6: Hmm... I had to start with Hemingway. Hemingway was a big influence on me when I started writing, and still is. So certainly um, Hemingway. Let's see who else. Nancy Houston I really like a lot, particularly a, a book called uh, Fault Lines. Uh, Philip Roth, Joan Clark. these are some of my favorites. If you could change something about yourself, what would it be? You know what? I'd like to have a singing voice. <laughs> I cannot sing, and I I embarrass myself when I try. I embarrass my family. But, you know, i, I like to be at least a, a fraction better than what, than what I am or what I turned out to be.
1: On what occasions
6: do you lie? Hmm. Well, there are lies and there are lies. I think I try to avoid the big ones, because I think that that will probably inevitably come back to bite you. Uh, Let let's me think of an example. Okay, we have a dog who has proven to be a bit hard to train. He's a puppy, he's a Havanese puppy, and occasionally uh, does uh, the business in the house. So sometimes my wife might arrive home she's had a few stresses in her day already you know uh I you know I hope the dog hasn't pooped in the house and I'll say no no and you know that might not necessarily be true I will have cleaned up the mess made no sign of it you know and let the day go on and once you get beyond dog poop then it becomes lies become more challenging <laughs> Who is your favorite painter? Ooh, I have several. I, I'll go back to Vermeer, I, which I really like a lot. Um, coming forward in time, Marth Rotko, um, absolutely. Currently, um, two painters, uh, probably Sean Scully, who I really like, and Howard Hodgkin. Um, you know, my I've been in able to be in a room in the Tate in in London with just the room only have Mark Rothko paintings and uh, that experience especially because that for a few moments there was nobody else in the room and I just absorbed that so much it was kind of a height of happiness for, for that moment and, I, and the same thing happened with me. In a in a museum in Ireland, with with Sean Scully's work surrounding me, uh, you know these are these are abstract painters, and I really relate to the color gradation and what those evoke. What is your principal defect? Hmm. You know, sometimes I feel that I'm not as as caring, maybe as I, as I could have been, uh, you know, maybe I could have been more helpful to some people along the way, the course of my life, than maybe, than maybe I was. Uh, maybe there were points in my life, maybe I was too caught up in myself and, and uh, you know, trying to make um, a go of it as uh, in, in my chosen occupation. So, you know, if I had to. Uh, to think that that may be some possible. I do think of myself as a kind, I guess, and considerate person. But you always maybe feel you could done done one better.
1: Where would you like to live?
6: Well, I'm very happy living actually where I do in Newfoundland. It's a it's a tremendous place to live. It's a uh, the scenery is fantastic. The way of life is very interesting culturally. We're that much different from the rest of North America. If there was a time, I would remove myself. <laughs> it would probably be April and May of each year, which are terribly often in Newfoundland. We we anticipate a spring, but we never quite get there. So let's move me for those two months at least to... Uh, a warmer climate uh, where the sun shines. doesn't have to be hot, but just uh, comfortable. And, uh, you know, let me visit some interesting spots. Take me to Scotland and let me go and visit some distilleries that I really like.
2: That was Kevin Major answering the Proust questionnaire. The most recent book in his Sebastian Senard mystery series is Five for Forteau.
1: Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. When it
2: comes to plot possibility, you can't beat, and then a stranger comes to town. An outsider always stirs things up, and that's what happens in Sarah Bernstein's unsettling novel, Study for Obedience. In this story, a woman moves to a remote town to be a housekeeper for her brother. And as strange and sinister things begin to happen, the townspeople become increasingly suspicious and resentful of her. Study for Obedience is a breakout book for the young writer, landing on both the shortlist for this year's Scotiabank Giller Prize and the Booker Prize. Sarah grew up in Montreal and now teaches creative writing and literature in Scotland. She lives in the Scottish Highlands in the village of Achiltibui. And she joined Ryan B. Patrick from there to talk about her novel, Study for Obedience.
1: Hello, Sarah, and welcome to the next chapter.
4: Hi, thanks so much for having me.
1: This is a, such an exciting time for you and this book. H- how are you feeling about it all?
4: <laughs> a little bit overwhelmed, I think. I mm. think I haven't really been able to simulate the news in, in a very real way.
1: <laughs> but
4: yeah, it's been, it's been a bit of a whirlwind, I think.
1: Congrats on that again. There's so much to unpack here. You're exploring questions of agency, complicity, displacement, inheritance. It's an absurdist tale. In many respects, um, but it's mm-hmm. also a really cool depiction of nature's dichotomy like the beauty and the brutality there's like the, the beautiful lush fields but there's still that brutality of nature, I think. One thing that really stood out to me is that there's no names or places that you explicitly mention in the book there there's a there's a moment in the book where the narrator says the names were secret they were sacred like what what made you decide to kind of leave these details kind of uh, opaque or, or, or vague.
4: I wanted to be able to, to to leave that imaginative space open. So I think what's been really interesting for me is the responses of readers who have read very different things into it right. um, in terms of where it might be set or what the specific historical events that it might be referring to would be. Um, I think more broadly, I was I was interested in in the way that this character seems to be obsessed with precision in some ways so and that's kind of evident in the way she tells her story she's always trying to start again in some ways to try to get it right Hmm. um but but that is also in conflict with I think that that statement that you you just read, she believes that there's something about the relationship between herself and the rest of the world, whether that's people or the landscape or animals that should remain unknowable. So there's, she's kind of working through maybe almost an ethics of unknowability, trying to think of the things of the world um, outside of her own system of understanding. So I think that's one of the, it's one of the reasons i didn't want to necessarily pin down a name um because i felt that for this character she she was really seeking to to find different ways of relating to the world outside mm-hmm. of the system of understanding that like requires everything to be made transparent mm-hmm. so i think that those are some of the things i was thinking about there
1: yeah i found that very very intriguing like the unnamed narrator has this kind of overriding desire to be good. How does that kind of impact or affect her day-to-day life?
4: I think she's somebody who has always looked to other people and other scripts to organize her own way of being in the world. So she's she it it's almost like she feels formless to herself. She can't really imagine what a life should be or what a life should look like. So in the first instance, you know, she looks to her family to tell her how to be. Um, and then as she gets older, you know, she has invested a lot at first anyway, although she doesn't talk about it very much in her in her attempt to have a career as a journalist. And so I was thinking a bit about what it means when you invest so much in in y- your personality in a career that feels like a vocation. But you can't make it in that career or you can't you can't get a kind of security in that. So she ends up leaving it. And, and that, too, doesn't give shape to her life. Um, and that's partly why she goes back to live with her brother, because she's still looking for that external validation for the kind of world to press against her and create a shape for her rather than vice versa.
1: The beginning of the book the narrator doesn't seem to have much agency and this journey to kind of reclaim or recover or maybe even establish such agency takes her to places both physically and emotionally like what is agency to this character in the book
4: yeah that's a really interesting question i don't even i don't think she knows (laughs) in a way um (laughs) because i think it's something that that sort of happens to her almost by surprise yeah. right she yeah. there's there's one point in the novel where she starts to think that her language her words what she says might actually have the power to act in the world or to mm-hmm. create change and she's really surprised by that um and of course because there's this question about her own unreliability we don't we don't know you know yeah. whether to trust in that or not or to trust how much much up to this point that hasn't been the case Mm. um but equally she is spinning her own narrative right she's spinning us into her narrative so that does have have its own kind of power but i think the agents the question of agency for me in this book was a complicated one because i was interested in thinking about you know this is somebody who it's, she's a character who obviously has been poorly treated by her family. She's been poorly treated by her coworkers, workers um, And, you know, she ascribes that to some kind of inborn quality that she has in her. Um, so so she's definitely had a rough go of it, but also she's, she's not and she doesn't see herself as somebody who is innocent. So she is we also see her as a character who's abdicated this kind of moral responsibility in her own life. So for example, when she's um, transcribing the notes of the legal case that she's working on, she doesn't want to understand it because to understand it would mean that she would have to take some kind of moral position on it. And she doesn't feel herself able to. So I think I was trying to think through and complicate this idea that in order to be somebody who bad things have happened to you know we sort of expect people to be innocent right Mm. so for for society to be like yes something has bad something bad has happened to that person that's very wrong we also expect them to be this kind of paragon of virtue or moral purity um and I think that that's that's really disturbing (laughs) for any number of reasons um because because I mean we're just people right we're not we're not innocent
1: i want to explore and unpack that narrative some more but let's talk about the the craft the craft of this book sarah um to use the modern slang i have to give you your flowers (laughs) Uh, (laughs) i think think the craft on display is like virtuosic in scope. Like, I think the Thanks. language, the language is just humming at a high level. It's like, almost like you're tuning up the band, and then you're off and running with this kind of stream of consciousness narration. Like you're <laughs> you're, you're, you're <laughs> I'm giving you all your flowers, like you're, you're playing with yeah, sy- really? <laughs> syntax, cadence, uh, participles, and then the story kind of unfolds from there. Like, uh, I'm puffing you up <laughs> so much right now. <laughs> but uh, w- what was it like to play with form in that way?
4: I, I really like the comparison to the band, because I think it, since I've since I've started to to have to talk about the way that I write, and it's not necessarily something that I had really thought about before, which which doesn't really save any much. <laughs> for me But I think it's been really useful because what it made me realize is that I actually tend to write according to the sound of a line. Mm. Um, so it's almost like hearing a musical phrase and then kind of catching on to it and following that line to, to its, to its logical end, but that logic, that logic is a logic of sound, um, or imagery rather than, rather than story. So I think oftentimes what happens and what happened in this case is that I, I started with the voice first and I had to figure out the background and the story later, mm. um, So it's, it's not a very efficient way of working, but I think, I think it was interesting this time writing, writing this book, because I knew what I needed to do. And I sort of trusted that the voice that I was hearing was a voice that had a story to tell. And I just needed to kind of work out what that story was.
1: Mm, Interesting. Interesting. So we're talking about, um, Sarah, your book, Study for Obedience. So the title of the book feels very prescriptive. And and it kind of had me thinking, like, as a human, one can essentially treat another human however they want. And it's kind of up to that human to decide how they want to respond. And when you really think about that, that's kind of liberating, but also terrifying, (laughs) in a sense. Like, how do you personally feel about that concept?
4: It is kind of terrifying in a way, right mm. um, that you you have no you can never really interpret how your actions or you know the things that you say will be interpreted by other people and you don't have control over the narrative that people spin about you and I think what's interesting maybe about that in relation to this character is that she. She is somebody who doesn't fight that at all. She kind of eats it up. Um, she she thinks, yeah, like, I don't have control over any of this. So I'm just going to imbibe all of these different narratives that people have written about me um, or, you know, sort of said about me. And, and that's how I'm going to organize my life.
1: Mm-hmm. But
4: she does have this sort of thread of resistance in her, I think, too, that that comes out in certain ways.
1: Yeah, definitely. And I definitely get the sense that she needs constant validation. Am am I far off the mark with that?
4: Yeah, she definitely does. She, you know, I think one of the many frustrating things about this character is that she's so solitary and and in some ways has eschewed human human contact for much of her life besides, you know, her contact with her family. Mm. But she also she she can't really understand herself outside of other people. Um, And I think there's something there about the fact that, you know, in a less extreme way, we all need each other to take shape, right? People are people in so far as they relate to others. Everything, you know, about us is relational. There's nothing kind of essential at the core of any of us. Yeah. Um, I don't think anyway. And I think she, she is sort of working through some of these ideas. She does think that there's something at the core of her that has made her abject and made her somebody that is treated in this particular way. Mm-hmm. But maybe this comes back also to the the question of innocence, right? Because it, if people are treating her in this way, it's also because of the way that she treats them. So right. there's that kind of give and take there too.
1: Mm-hmm. Sarah, congrats on everything, all the success you've been having, and and thanks for the conversation.
4: Thank you very much for having me.
2: That was Sarah Bernstein in conversation with Ryan B. Patrick about her novel, Study for Obedience. It's on both the shortlist for the 2023 Giller Prize and the Booker Prize. Let me tell you about At Bridge Likes Books. That's the TikTok username of our colleague here at CBC Books, Bridget Raimundo. She's our in house TikTok queen who keeps us and her thousands of followers laughing and reading along with her on her fabulously fun Book Talk feed. Bridget joins me to tell us about her not so secret life on Book Talk, why she wants a Filipina season of Bridgerton, and what she's been checking out in the Book Talk space lately. Hello, Bridget. Welcome to the next chapter.
5: Thank you so much for having me, Ellie. How
2: are you? I'm good because I've uh, spent about 45 minutes watching your uh, book talk page. You're having a lot of fun. Is that were you having this much fun in life before you joined TikTok?
5: Oh, what a question um uh, i think i think i've always been very involved in fandom spaces i will say yeah i was one of those kids who was given probably too early access to the internet and so i distinctly remember being the 10th top fan on the hunger games fan net <laughs> but I, I i will say life definitely got a lot more fun once i joined booktop it opened me up to a whole world where i was like oh i can actually make a career out of talking about books. That's amazing. Um, And find lots of wonderful people and community there.
2: You also joined during the pandemic. So anything was more fun than just sort of being in the pandemic, I imagine. But what did you discover about TikTok when you first joined? It was definitely an interesting time.
5: Um, I had just, I think, come out to my friends and family as queer like a couple months before our first lockdown. (laughs) Um, So, you know, by necessity, we all went under uh, isolation. Uh, But it kind of meant that I was in this period of really finding myself and wanting to find community. And that became a little bit more difficult. Um, So when I came across BookTok, I was very resistant to join TikTok. I thought it was just a dancing app, like I think a lot of us initially assume. But it shows you what you want to see. So I think I saw one video of someone talking about a book and then that became my entire feed. Um, And that was a really interesting time because I found that it was primarily a a female dominated space, a queer space, um, and was just making connections with great people who had uh, great book recommendations and newer recommendations of uh, queer books. Um, So that became kind of my hub and where I just began learning so much and and finding so much
2: connection with people. Book talk has become very influential in promoting books, putting backlist books on bestseller lists. I mean, really, doing incredible things for books. You only you said you've only really been in there on there for a few years, but so much happens and there's so much growth in a short period of time that. I wanted to ask what you've seen over your years on the platform, and I don't want to say your years, it's only been a few, but it, it feels like much more than that because so much happens.
5: Yeah, I mean, it feels like a long time too. It's definitely shifted um, in a big way. I think, yeah, it, it started out kind of as taking these backlist titles and making them popular again. Uh, so things like The Hunger Games, or um, there's a, a great contemporary book called They Both Die at the End,
2: and guess what happens in that book? Um, <laughs> I, I, can't, I can't even imagine for the life of me. I don't want to give it away. I don't want to ruin no. it for others. No.
5: Yeah. Uh, but uh, these are books that I think a lot of people similar, similar to me had read many years before um, and were involved in space. And there were big books on like things like BookTube uh, or Bookstagram. And when we came into this space, we started talking about them again and living in that nostalgia because everyone was kind of starting to find their love of reading again. Um, And it's shifted over the, I think the three years since 2020 to become more of a space where newer titles really get a chance to shine. Um, So there's a book called a broken blade by Melissa Blair, uh, who's an Anishinaabe writer. And she is a book talker herself. And essentially when she, Uh, set out to market this book. She published it initially under Anonymous and then created a secret account on BookTok and said, this book is written by a book talker and set up this whole campaign where she was sending the book to uh, her friends and they didn't know that she had written it and they had different clues of who it could be. And it just blew up into this thing where everyone was getting so involved and thinking, oh my gosh, who wrote this book? Uh, and when she revealed it, everyone was so excited about it, and it went to traditional publishing. Um, so that's an example, in a real literal sense, of of how community oriented the space is, um, and how it can take a, it was a debut author at the time and really champion her um, and get her into the bestseller
2: lists. I wanted to ask you what kind of books or titles have done the best on Book Talk. Is it those that you just mentioned, ones that start? small and then sort of grow in kind of an organically cool way among, among a, you know, a, a small group of people, and then it just explodes
5: yeah I would say um it really depends on the chaos of the algorithm. <laughs> um, it's a completely unpredictable space, which I think is interesting for publishers and reviewers and readers as well to engage with um, because you can place your bets and uh, and do all the research on what books will do well, but sometimes there's just like a golden nugget in all of this. Um, I definitely think a broken blade was uh, was an example of this just very lovely. Uh, organic happening. There are some books, though. There's a book called Red, White, and Royal Blue by Casey McQuiston. It just was adapted into a movie, and it's a an adult romance about the Prince of England and uh, the first son in the states. And um, it's a really fun story. But this was had a bit of a following initially, and the author was on Book Talk, um, and then was really picked up. And became this I think one of the staple book talk books
2: this is such an uplifting conversation. I hate to be this guy, but what are the you know pitfalls that you might have seen on on book talk
5: yeah, I mean I think it's it's a needed conversation in the space as we're entering it's become such a big thing. you know you have those book talk tables at indigo and so on, and I think the way that uh, book talk recently has been represented in the media and the news from the the bigger stories that hit the mainstream is uh not always the case of what it is um i've curated my feed very specifically so that i can avoid the pitfalls from time to time Mm. um but i would say the biggest issue is trying to find that balance uh between readers reviewers and writers Um, particularly writers and reviewers, um, because it's such a reviewer space. um, When writers come in there to promote their books, it's such a tricky balance of one, not hurting the writer's feelings, but also allowing that to be a community space for readers to talk authentically about what they love and maybe don't love. And then just generally the bigger thing is that it's become such a a huge space. Um, There's so much content and so, It's difficult sometimes to to stay hopeful if you're an author or if you are even as a content creator and there's a book I really want to do well. um, It's difficult sometimes when when the views are low and and people aren't engaging with it the way that they
2: used to. You spend most of your time on TikTok, uh, not just reviewing books, but just being very funny. Where was that inner comedian living before book talk? Oh, my
5: gosh, Ellie, that's
2: such a compliment
5: coming from you. Um, Yeah, I mean, I'm an only child. (laughs) I spend most of my time uh, imagining and and, uh, creating jokes for myself and trying to make my friends laugh. Um, And that's kind of what I set out for this space to be. I think, like, what differs BookTok from other um, bookish spaces, like on YouTube or Instagram, is that it's not always straight up reviews. Um, a lot of the times it's just um, quick comments or making a funny joke about uh, a book that people love um, mm. and kind of having that that relatability and connection with people.
2: Yeah, I mean, you're just having a great time. It doesn't seem like work of any kind. I saw a couple of these Bridgerton remakes that you, you suggested a Filipina version, uh, or one with queer vampires, if you have to choose one, which would you pick and why?
5: Well, I don't think I have to choose one. The one that, the book that uh, I was referring to there uh, has both. Um, It's a book called Silver Under Nightfall uh, by Rin Chapeco, who is a wonderful fantasy author um, and also popular on BookTok, I would say. And uh, this is a book I read, it's probably at the start of the year, um and it is Bridgerton, but with vampires and and with Filipino vampires specifically. Uh it's about this character named Remy Pendergast, and he's a vampire hunter. Um, but he's also suspected to be half vampire himself, and he goes on this quest. It was probably one of the most interesting books I've I've ever read, but it was so fun uh and fast paced, and the most fun experiences of being in this space is finding books that intersect with all of my identities as well mm. um, as a Filipino person it's so hard for some reason to find books by Filipinos, um, and just this this whole world in this book really takes in the the scenery and the geography of the philippines um, all those little inside jokes and uh, things that my mother would understand as well Um, Mm. and so I don't have to pick with that book it it already exists and I want to find a way to make a a Bridgerton Filipina season happen
2: (laughs) I'm sure it will I'm sure you will find a way if Shonda Rhimes is listening Uh, Shonda does listen to the next chapter in in between show writing multiple exactly. <laughs> shows, she finds the time for the next chapter. Uh, before we go, you recommended a few books in our chat, but are there a couple of titles that are trending these days on Book Talk that you would recommend?
5: Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think a staple uh, author in the community is Chloe Gong, um, and she writes a lot of young adult fantasy. Um, kind of based on Shakespearean plays. Uh, So her recent one is actually a new adult uh, fantasy called Immortal Longings, and it's a retelling of Antony and Cleopatra, but in a sci-fi way. Um, And that one is really fun, uh, and I would definitely recommend it as well, especially if you're familiar with the author, but it's also uh, an older novel of hers from the young adult, so it's really um, something that anyone could get into, um, I think Lizelle Sambury, who's a who's a Canadian author, she's doing really well on, on the app. And her books, her recent book, Delicious Monsters, is a, a horror novel, um, kind of like Haunting of Hill House vibes, but in Toronto. There's a girl, and she sees ghosts everywhere in Toronto, which is my worst nightmare, because um, <laughs> I feel like they, they're everywhere. Um, and she writes these wonderful like urban fantasies and and horror novels and it's so lovely to see her do well.
2: Chatting with you Bridget is a reminder of how broad the world of writing is and how many unbelievably you know wild things can be written about and intersected with and thanks for this a great chat.
5: Thank you so much for having me.
2: Bridget Raimundo is an associate producer at CBC Books, and you can find her on TikTok at Bridge Likes Books. And the titles she talked about today are on our website, cbc.ca slash the next chapter. And that's it for today's program. Jacqueline Kirk is our senior producer with Lisa Matthews. And thanks this week to Talia Cliott, Trevor Carter, Emily Chiarvezio, and to the CBC Books digital team. Coming up next week, M.G. Vasanji revisits his early love of physics in his new novel, Everything There Is. It's about a world-renowned physicist, a man of science, who also happens to be a man of faith. And Ryan B. Patrick will bring us an interview with Dion Irving whose short story collection, The Islands, is on the shortlist for the 2023 Giller Prize. I'm Ali Hassan. Thanks for listening to the next chapter. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.